Studies show that people who forgive are happier and healthier than those who hold resentments. Studies show that when people think about forgiving their offender, it actually leads to things like improved functioning in their cardiovascular and nervous systems. And the more forgiving people are, this is what scholarly studies show, the less they suffered from a wide range of illnesses. And then the less forgiving people were, the greater number of health problems. Based on these scholarly articles, I suppose we could come up with a, a big list for why it is that we should be forgiving, especially on this Easter Sunday, as many people pay attention to Jesus and this whole forgiveness thing in Jesus. But, you know, no matter how helpful these articles may be, we as Christians, we ask the question, well, what does God's word have to say about these things? What does God's word say about forgiveness in Christ? And then forgiving in Christ. From today's passage, we learn, if you're taking notes here, if you're taking notes at home, from today's passage, we learn that Christians are to forgive out of the forgiveness we have been given. And whether we forgive or not, this is the shock factor, whether we forgive or not reveals whether we are truly Christians. Let me repeat that again. Christians are to forgive out of the forgiveness we've been given. That's point number one. And then point number two is really the shock factor. <clears throat> whether or not we forgive reveals whether we are true Christians. Please join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Turn with me again to Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 5. If you have your, your phones there, you can just search the ESV. I'm reading from the ESV version the English Standard Version, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Matthew is one of the four gospel accounts. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are meant to introduce us to the good news, which that's what gospel means. It means good news. These gospels written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are meant to introduce us to the good news of Jesus Christ. They introduce us to who this Jesus is. What in the world did he say about himself? What did he teach? Why did he take on flesh to dwell amongst us? And why did he die and then rise again? Our today's passage, this passage today is truly practical, both for people exploring Christianity as well as for the Christian. And from it, once again, we look at two main things. Number one, Christians are to forgive out of the forgiveness we've been given. And then number two, the stark reality, the shock factor, whether we forgive or not reveals whether we are truly Christian. Look there, Matthew 18, 21 to 35, and I'll go ahead and read that now. Then Peter came up to him, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pray what pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Point number one, Christians are to forgive out of the forgiveness we've been given. Our passage begins with an interesting question. Go ahead and look, just take your eyes, look. As Christians, you know, we want to study the Bible. That's what we base our whole entire life on, revelation to man. So we definitely want to see and double check too if, if what I'm talking about is actually in the Bible. Look at verses 21 to 22. This is what it says. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It seems natural that Peter would ask this question that's really about Christian living. That's exactly what they were already talking about, Jesus to his disciples. If you just look at the headings that are found oftentimes in the Bible, uh, look at chapter 18, and you see here these, these uh, titles. 18.1, you look there, title above it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? The one who, the answer is the one who humbles himself before the Lord. So they're looking at like this character quality of one who follows Jesus. That's Christian living. 18.7, there it speaks about temptations to sin and the holiness of the kingdom. That is those who are in his kingdom, those who are Christians, who follow Jesus as Lord. And then 18.10, it speaks about the love of this father in heaven who seeks after the lost sheep with such determination and love and perseverance. 18.15, then there's Jesus' teaching here on the purity of the church. God's earthly assemblies that represent the heavenly kingdom, right? That's what a church is. And what are the Christians supposed to do? What is a Christian church supposed to do when one Christian sins against the other? There, Jesus says that Christians are to love the sinner, right? We're all sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are to seek them out. We're supposed to call them to repent. But if they persist in unrepentance, there Jesus says the church is a practice church discipline, seeking to bring about the restoration of the person so that they truly show an evidence that they have a love for God and actually know God. Then in our passage, Peter, in a good way, right, he's diving into the details of forgiveness about how many times, how many times should a brother uh, if a brother sin against me and I forgive him, look there in 21, he asks, if my brother sins against me, shall I forgive him up to seven times? Basic definition of forgiveness, right? Let's just back up here. Basic definition of forgiveness is to not hold someone's sins against them. It is to stop holding someone's sins against them. It is to stop treating them as if they are guilty. Instead, love them. It stop re- resenting them. And then instead, it is to seek reconciliation and restoration because of our love for our brothers and sisters in the church. Now, when Peter says here with this seven times, right, when he brings up the seven times, don't think Peter's actually being stingy with forgiveness as if he's saying only seven times. 
actually, when he suggests that he go up to seven times, he's actually going above and beyond what the Jewish rabbis taught in the day. They taught that a person should be forgiven for a repeated sin three times. So it's interesting here. Peter has this idea, right? This very good idea that, hey, you know, followers of Jesus, if you have Jesus as your Lord, we go above and beyond the Jewish teaching of the day, which may may not be represented uh, or found in the Old Testament. But we go above and beyond, knowing that Christ is the true fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, this actually sounds a lot like Peter. Peter, as some of you guys may know, and maybe you don't know, but Peter, he oftentimes went ahead. He was super bold. Sometimes he spoke without thinking, right? And, and he's kind of thinking, I know the answer seven times. But then Jesus replies, look there, verse 22. Not seven times, but 77 times. Now, your version, it may, it may not read 70 times seven. The original language could actually mean 77 times or could mean seven times, 70 times seven. But anyways, it's not three times, which is the Jewish rabbi's teaching. It's not Peter's number of seven who thinks he understands the kingdom. This number seven carries this idea of completeness. Jesus' number is like completeness times completeness. It's completeness upon completeness, 77 times. And here, don't think that the point is to that we are to stop forgiving on the 78th time. The point is, if you know Jesus and his infinite grace in salvation, if we know this Christ, who are we to keep a record of wrongs holding it against other people, even once? or twice, or three times, seven times. Infor- infinite forgiveness is the way of the king, as we, will see, as we will soon see. And it is the law of the kingdom. Now, stop for a moment. Let's be mindful. Let's remember the fact that here's Jesus, right? He's the one who's telling this story. We need to remember who is talking. This parable, right? This parable is like a, a make-believe story that is meant to teach a lesson. That's what a parable is. So anyways, as he's teaching this lesson, here stands Jesus sent of God to rescue sinners. He is the embodiment, right? The very embodiment of infinite forgiveness, infinite grace, and infinite mercy for sinners. So he invites them to turn from their sins and they will be forgiven. And as Jesus tells this principle, he has his eyes, remember, right? He has his eyes set on the cross. His entire life was lived, you can think about it this way, in the shadow of the cross. That was, in fact, his path that he walked. He knew that it was was there on the cross that he would accomplish salvation and the forgiveness of sins and be a marvelous display of God's infinite grace and infinite mercy. So, So, you know, if you think about it, like here's this softball question Jesus must be thinking maybe. He's maybe thinking, wow, what a softball question. I'll teach my disciples in patience, right? And Jesus tells tells him, well, let me tell you about the forgiveness, not just of your brother, but even of your enemies, as he goes on and does many times. Christ himself, Christian, we're thinking about application here. Christ himself is the example of what it looks like to grant infinite forgiveness and to display the immeasurable love of God to others. And he not only is the example, but he is also the means through which his people receive such forgiveness and love. So if you want to know how to forgive, and if you want to know forgiveness yourself, Jesus says, look to me here. 
He says, look to me, watch me, Peter here, right? He's looking for this ethic, this moral of forgiveness in the kingdom as Jesus is Lord. Lord, how much or how often or how is it that we go about this task of forgiving other people? And what Peter doesn't quite realize to the full just yet is that Jesus really says, watch me and I will show you exactly what this looks like. I am the embodiment and the very means of infinite forgiveness. Christian, maybe you are struggling with forgiving others, even right now, with the person sitting right next to you on the couch, right? Right now, we're all living together 24-7, some of us, right? We are with each other now, with our loved ones trying to love them. Maybe even right now, right? You are bitter, someone who has sinned against you. Maybe you don't want to be in the other person's presence. Maybe you hold on to grudges. Or maybe you are in, when, when you are in a fresh argument in an effort to punish and be exacting towards the other person, you go and dig up history so that you might hold it against them again in order to be vindictive, wanting revenge and to get even. You punish other people. Maybe you hear what Jesus said, right? You think 77 times. You think, dude, that's, that's way too much. And maybe you think, frankly, Peter's number of seven is way too hard. Maybe you think, hey, you know what is more suitable? It's not the Christians, not Christ's number. It's not the apostle of Christ's number. It's these other people's numbers. A number of three. Maybe that's more suitable too. Or maybe you just say, I won't even forgive them once if they did this one thing or since they did this one thing because I will never let anyone treat me like that, period. Let me just say that if that is you, Christian, and I don't say this lightly, let me just say that if this is you, Christian, that's not very Christian, right? I mean, to deny Jesus' number and say, no, that's not my number, I mean, that in and of itself is not very Christian. Christ calls his people to forgive and forgive and forgive and have an attitude that desires to love just like he does, seeking reconciliation, even with those who sin against him. Now, let me be clear here in this whole idea of infinite forgiveness. We are not talking about being tolerant to sin. Let's be really clear. We are not talking about dealing with other people when they sin against us as if we do not care or as if God does not care. We're not talking about giving people a license to sin. When we talk about forgiveness, we are not talking about giving people the freedom to sin. We're not talking about giving, turning a blind, eye, a, a blind eye to people's sin and then pretending as if it never happened. We are talking about, what we are talking about is that we are to not have a heart that forever resents someone for their sin. What we're talking about and going further now is to have a heart that desires reconciliation with others, a desire to forgive them. And even one day, God willing, by his grace in the strength of Christ, delight in giving forgiveness towards another person. And so, so let's be clear. We can still forgive while upholding the consequences of sin. There are, in fact, consequences of sin or for sin. Let's think of an example, right? If there's domestic abuse. I don't know of any cases in our church. Praise the Lord for that. But let's just say if there is domestic abuse in the home, well, let's be frank, right? This needs to be dealt with by the church and by the proper authorities. 
That's a legitimate consequence for sin. When it comes to the church, right, we know too, Jesus was just talking about discipline for the unrepentant sinner. That is removing the, the unrepentant from the roles of the church. We're not talking about removing sinners, right, because that would be all of us. We're talking about those who sin and live in it. They refuse to repent, even after people are lovingly called them and teaching them that this is not what Jesus desires of us. So we are supposed to remove the unrepentant from the church roles in order that they would feel the weight of sin, just how serious this is to God, and then turn back. And then the church would receive them back, not, not as being perfect, but as being repentant, acknowledging, yes, I do sin, and we need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So Christian, I want you to know that while we can still forgive, and while we are called to forgive an infinite amount of times, while we're still called to have this posture of forgiveness, we are still to uphold the fact that there are, in fact, consequences for sin. And those consequences themselves teach us some very good things about why we shouldn't sin. So this passage speaks about having the heart posture to forgive and seeking reconciliation with the appropriate people. It is certainly not easy. Like if you, Christian, are wrestling with this or have wrestled with this in the past, you know that this is not easy. But it is possible. It is possible by the grace of God. What is it that makes it possible? Why are Christians to forgive? Well, it's because Christ has forgiven us. And so Christians are to forgive out of the forgiveness we have been given. To drive home this point that Christians are to forgive from the forgiveness they've been given, Jesus tells this parable, right, this story. Look there in 23. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Let's read it together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, let me just explain here. When we read these parables, these stories of Jesus, there's no need to tie every detail of the story to some spiritual or heavenly reality. It's not like a one-to-one -one story. There's, no, there's not to be this one-to-one -one comparison. That's not the way parables are to be read, whether parables then or even parables today, right? We don't exactly do that. The main lessons of this parable, right? The main lessons of this parable is that Christians are to forgive as they've been forgiven, right? And then again, shock factor, if you can't forgive, you may not know God's forgiveness to begin with. So right there, right, as we learn to read parables, these stories of Jesus, uh, all I'm doing here in this sermon, in this time, is summarizing the whole parable, which Jesus himself does at the end. We're going to get there. Uh, Jesus gives commentary at the very end, sort of the take-home lesson. Let's go ahead and look at this moving parable. We see clearly that our main characters, we got a king and we got two of his servants. We got a king and then two of his servants. And look there, one day, the king moves to settle accounts. Now, right there, as we read of this debt of money, I want you guys to think especially of a spiritual debt. Don't just think monetary debt, think spiritual debt, right? Elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, sin is spoken of as debt. Sin is spoken of as debt. It's like the debt that all of us have for having sinned against the Creator. We know this in the very beginning. God created man to be in a relationship with him. There was no sin. It was perfect love, perfect relationship. 
<clears throat> God designed man to be in a relationship with him. Just imagine the perfect father creates people to be in this loving relationship. And then in an effort to help them, God draws near to them. And you know what the people do? They basically say, look, we don't really care about you. We'd rather go off and do our own thing. We know that you've given us laws, but we're just going to retrace the boundaries that you've given us. We're going to redraft this constitution you've given us. And in that, friends, they sin against God. God knows what is true, what is right, what is good, and what is wrong. Adam and Eve, right? You see in Genesis, they step up to the plate and they're like, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to determine what is good and bad for ourselves. And in so doing, they set up their own throne. The problem, though, is that there is only one king. There is only one throne. So in setting up their throne, they face directly. They, they make themselves face directly against God. That's the spiritual debt. The punishment of sin is death, the Bible says. Eternal death, even in hell, the Bible says. So think spiritual debt here as Jesus tells the story of debt. Okay, servant one, right? He was brought in and look at the amount of his debt. Some of you guys, maybe you got, you know, loans to pay off. You got student, you know, you got student stuff. You got your mortgage. You got your car. Verse 24 says that it was 10,000 talents. A talent was a measurement of money in weight. Okay, think weight. A talent is a measurement of money in weight. 65 pounds around that, around that amount. So if you had a talent of gold, right, you had a, 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 let's say, a bag of gold of 65 pounds, 65 pounds of gold. So in terms of weight, Oh, no, no, get this, right? One talent was worth 20 years of labor for, for you know, the average servant here. One talent was worth 20 years of labor. So in this case, the servant owes the king not one talent, right, but 10,000 talents. In terms of weight, the servant owes over 660,000 pounds of gold, if gold was, you know, the money that they were using, if that's the metal that they were using. That's like having, hard to understand, 666,000 pounds of gold. But that's like lining up 66 elephants. If like the average elephant is 10,000 pounds, you have 66 elephants weight worth of gold. In terms of dollar value, we're talking about billions. Some estimate, you know, one to three. I haven't done uh, calculations recently, but, you know, estimate billions. In terms of servitude, the servant owes his master 200,000 years of work. 200,000. Imagine owing your lender that kind of debt. But that's Jesus's point, isn't it? This servant has an infinite amount of debt, a debt that cannot be repaid. And so what happens, right? The servant knows he's in trouble, right? Because the king said, look, we're going to have to sell you off into sell you off uh, to somebody else, which was common in the day. You know, you could be a slave if you didn't have any money. If you were poor, you could give yourself to slavery or servitude to somebody. And then you could even serve as like a doctor or something like that. And there's evidence that this has actually happened. And then the servants go on, the so-called slaves go on, and then they make so much that they buy their freedom. Uh, we know, too, that Jews were to um, set people free. You know, if they were in this kind of servitude, they were to give them freedom every on the seventh year. Beautiful, beautiful situation here. Um, so he's in trouble, right? He knows that he won't get underneath this seemingly gracious master. Uh, and so what does he do? What does he, what does he do? The servant, knowing that he's in trouble, he falls down out of desperation. There in verse 26, he pleads with the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
And, but but you look at the debt, right, that we just talked about, and it seems like he's just promised to do something that he could never do in the first place. And the king does something so extraordinary. Verse 27, what does it say? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. What are the two things that he does? You know, look at the passage. What are the two things that he does? It says there that he frees him. He releases him into freedom and he forgives him the debt. And all of that came, right? This releasing, granting of freedom and this forgiveness. All of that came out of this heart that the master had of pity or compassion upon this guy in his situation. I mean, to me, it's clear why Jesus uses this, this particular story to teach Peter and the disciples. I think it's because it's a picture of God's compassion and grace to sinners. It conveys this very real truth about the desperate situation that all mankind is in for having, once again, rebelled against God. It's a picture of how God sees our situation, our trouble because of our own sin, and he so intervenes out of what? Compassion upon his people, mercy upon his people. That, the, that term there, mercy, is like God sees that we are in trouble and he steps in to help. And this he does in Jesus Christ. You think about John 3, 16, so famous a verse here. It said, for God so loved the world, right? Out of love, what did he do? That he gave his only son, his eternal son. That for the reason of whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his eternal son to take on flesh. And where, and where the righteous demands of the law were upon humans, right? where they were upon humans, right? God looked and he saw we couldn't keep that because of our sin. And so what does he do? He sends Christ to fulfill that law for his people. He lives the righteous life we could have. And then not only that though, but you look at the death sentence that was upon us for setting our face against the one and only true king, right? Committing treason against the king. What does he do? The death that we deserve for our unrighteousness, he lays that upon his one and only. The wrath that we deserve, he lays that upon Jesus Christ. It's what many Christians think about on Good Friday, especially when it comes to the calendar year. And so taking upon our sin, Jesus went to the cross and dies on the cross. Seeing the wrath of God upon sinners, Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross. And so he bears the sin and the wrath that we deserve, and he sheds his blood on the cross, dies the death we should have so that we would be free. And in doing so, now that sin is no longer on our shoulders or the guilt of it, the wrath of it is no longer on our shoulders, our infinite debt, if you're a Christian, our infinite debt, our record of sin is canceled, done away with. The papers, so to speak, have been torn by, through the means of Jesus Christ as he took it upon himself. He takes the hit himself and so absorbs our debt. He takes the hit himself and so absorbs our debt. You get that? The only way our debts are cleared is because Christ absorbs it himself. And so on the cross, where our debt is canceled and where we are freed from the power of sin and death, we rejoice all because of Jesus. Knowing, right? that eternal death doesn't hang over us any longer. 
Because on the third day, Christ rose from the grave showing all that payment was made. As he is risen and lives to new life, all of his people who are in him, who believe on him, know this true life. We know life anew and eternal life with God. No longer eternal death and hell, but eternal life with Jesus. Death is no more. Praise God for that. Payment has been made through Christ the Savior. That, friends, is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that many people think about on Good Friday and Easter. And frankly, as a Christian, we celebrate this every single Lord's Day. That is Sunday. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself to be exploring Christianity, friends, let me tell you that this is exactly what Christ came to do. And if you turn from the sin of living for self, and then you turn to your creator, Christ the Lord, you will be forgiven. You can know this new life, this what the Bible calls it, new life, eternal life in Jesus Christ, where you are restored to your maker and the king so that, so that you would know him as father. Praise God that in, in the Bible, God, God says that he adopts people, sinners, into his family where they would know his peace and his love poured out in our hearts. So no longer do we need to face God as judge who will judge us for sin eternally, but now we know him as good father. And then we experience all the benefits and the blessings of being someone in his household. What a, what a marvelous truth that is. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you on this Easter Resurrection Sunday, repent of your sins. That is turn is what it means. It means to turn away from your sins and believe on him and you will be saved. Praise God for that. For Peter, as he looks for this law of forgiveness, right? He's thinking about the kingdom, Christian living underneath the Lord of the kingdom. As he looks for this law of forgiveness in the kingdom of God, Christ really just says, as he tells him this story, look to the forgiveness you have in the king. Infinite forgiveness out of God's mercy, compassion, and grace in Jesus Christ. As scene one closes in this parable, as scene one closes, as the king releases the servant to freedom, having forgiven him his debt, we are really left right on this encouraging note. The king has mercy and grace to sinners. Praise God for that. But as we will soon see, though the king's heart overflows in such compassion and mercy and grace to his servant, the servant's heart, though, the servant's heart remains unchanged, untouched, unaffected. Look there at verses 28 to 31. As we go on to scene two, the curtain opens, right? The spotlight shines on this servant. Look there at 28 to 31. But bad news here. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. This is absolutely outrageous, this thing that this servant has done given what the king just did for him. Though the scenes change, the servant's heart remains unchanged, unaffected, unmoved. This brings us to point number two. This brings us to point number two, the stark reality that whether we forgive or not, whether we forgive or not as Christians, reveals whether we are truly Christians. 
reveals whether we are truly Christians. And this servant shows himself to not understand God's forgiveness, and I think not understand his true debt. Here's an example, right? While he has been given compassion, he is completely void of compassion. He's completely void of compassion. Did you notice what servant two does? I'll just call him servant two. Um, did you notice what servant two does and says when servant one, the wicked servant, as he's called here, the wicked servant comes to collect? Verse 29, servant two falls on his knees and please be patient with me and I will pay you. I mean, can you imagine that? You figure that servant one, the wicked servant, hearing the same plea that he just pled to the king would move his heart to mercy and compassion to do the same exact thing. But there's nothing. His heart's unaffected. And you think, how can it remain so unaffected? He himself pled for time to pay back the loan. He's, he's pleading for time. And the king has pity on him. And then imagine, right, after experiencing such compassion from the king and his grace and his mercy, right? Just, just, I'm just imagining here. Maybe, right, the king orders his court officials, his court helpers to help this servant up to his feet where he can stand again, knowing that his account has been cleared and he has now been reconciled to the king, free to live in his kingdom according to the mercy and the king's sacrifices. He absorbs that debt himself. But then the way Jesus tells the story in the, in the servant's first step into freedom almost, right? His first step into freedom, he moves towards vindictiveness. There's no compassion, no clearing accounts, no helping up from the knees. It's like he's determined to use his freedom to make others pay through violence even. He chokes the guy. You know, being, being a beginner in jiu-jitsu, knowing a little bit of jiu-jitsu, I don't know what kind of choke he used, but man, this guy's, this guy's nuts. He's choking this guy. With this monster, right, accounts are called through terror and violence. There is no mercy, no compassion. There is no self-sacrifice. So he doesn't understand, understand grace. And so he shows no desire to give grace. He doesn't understand it, so he doesn't show it. Here's another example, right? This is all the more tragic and true when you compare the debt factor, right? Exactly how much he owed the king and exactly how much this other guy owes him is even more said. One person said the scene is like a tragic comedy. First, servant one thinks he can actually repay his debt. He thinks he can actually repay his debt, right? But we know this is an impossibility. And then he tries to collect this near, this, this almost insignificant amount from his fellow servant. Compared to his debt to the king, this servant's debt to him is, is frankly minuscule. The guy owed him like 100 denarii. That's 100 days wages. While that might seem like a lot, you can certainly repay it. But you got to compare that to the 200,000 years, years of wages. That's like owing the king an infinite amount. And then turning around and saying, give me back that five bucks I loaned you for that taco and then choking you for it. It's ridiculous. He doesn't get God's grace. And this guy's debt, keep in mind, right? This wicked servant's debt is canceled. It's not just delayed, right? It's not just delayed so he can go out and really collect, you know, 200 years worth of labor. It's canceled. It's gone. It's done for. It's removed. He's free. But yet... In his freedom, once again, he makes people, he imprisons other people, calling them to account. You figure anyone who would leave the courts of a gracious and merciful king. We know he is because the servants see this un, uh, injustice and they go and report it to him. And he acts. We know that he's a just king. We know that he's a merciful king. 
You figure that anyone who would leave the courts of this king would leave delighting in his grace and compassion, right? Just imagine being forgiven of so much. You leave bounding with joy, wanting other people to experience that same freedom and forgiveness as well. Both in pointing to the king, right, as he points them in their joy, look at the king, look at the king, but also in extending that same very forgiveness to others, wanting people to, to know this freedom because it's good news, right? We do this with Krispy Kreme donuts. I got tw- I got a dozen donuts, like go and get them, experience my joy. This guy, though, went with the most important things, the forgiveness of debt, which, of course, we should read and understand this to be spiritual debt. This is good news, but he doesn't see it as good news. You listen to this quote that I have from John Calvin. Listen, listen to, I mean, this is just, there's a lot of shock factor here. He says, no one is permitted to receive God's blessings unless he is consumed with the awareness of his poverty. We're going to come back to this idea by the end of the parable, but listen up to this now. No one is permitted to receive God's blessings unless he is consumed with the awareness of his poverty. I don't think this wicked servant is consumed with the awareness of his poverty because otherwise he would be bounding with joy having left the king's courts experiencing freedom and forgiveness of all of his debt, an infinite amount of debt. Members of First Baptist Church, even though right, we have been forgiven by grace, changed by the grace of Jesus, we still struggle with this, don't we? If you're a non-Christian, maybe you're tuning in, right? Christians don't say, we do not think that we are perfect in any way. We still wrestle with sin. It doesn't come until the end when we're with Jesus. But praise God, Jesus Christ, even right now, he's given us a new heart. He's written his law on our hearts, given us new desires. And, and by laboring to love Jesus well, and by Jesus loving us well, and us knowing his love, we grow in our holiness. But we're not perfect. We still sin. So Christian, maybe now more than ever, right, you are wrestling with this forgiveness. Maybe you feel bitter towards others, whether towards our parents, maybe, or your spouse or your children or your friends, right? When they sin against us in big ways or just simply irritate us in little small ways, we can still struggle with anger, can't we? We are tempted to punish those who sin against us, even though we live, we bask in the grace of God and Jesus Christ, where our debts have been paid and we have been set free to live for him. But in our own struggle with sin, we fight and wrestle over like these grains of rice, these little pithy things, maybe larger things, even when we've just come from the king's buffet where grace abounds. We are tempted to take the grace of God in Christ. Yeah, I'll take it. But show so little to our brother or sister who sinned against us again. Here's the real deal. From our passage, Christian, God calls us to forgive others out of the forgiveness we have received, not out of the kindness of your heart, as if that's where the, the, you know, the ultimate form of forgiveness is, but out of the fountain of grace that sustains you even right now and will sustain you in the years to come until Christ returns. Christian, you see that as we love like Jesus Christ, forgiving like Christ, depending on the strength of Christ to do that, we represent our Christ. Certainly not a perfect representation, but a representation nonetheless. You know that Christ 
just as Christ lived in the shadow of the cross. Well, in light of the victory and everything that he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, Christ calls us as Christians to live in light of the cross. We are to live in light of the cross where we know the compassion of God towards us, though we sinned against him and our debt was infinite. He did not abandon us. He didn't write us off. But being the gracious and merciful God that he is, he saw our plight, has pity on us because we are who we are. And he moves in compassion to deliver and to save us in Jesus Christ. Christian, if you know yourself to struggle to forgive your fellow Christians or anyone, whether they be Christian or not, we know that Jesus speaks about forgiving enemies as well, loving our enemies. Let me encourage you to remember your infinite debt. Let me encourage you to remember your infinite debt and then, or and, the eternal hell you earned for yourself. That's the first thing to remember. Remember your infinite debt and the eternal hell that you justly earned for yourself. But then, right, don't stop there. But then, remember God's pardon in Jesus Christ. Remember God's pardon in Jesus Christ. Remember, let's visit, revisiting the judgment, right, that we earn for ourselves. Remember how you were once bound to your sentence. But in the mercy and grace of God, he released you of your debt by becoming your guarantor and by paying it all down through the shed blood of his son. He frees you from condemnation by absorbing such debt in himself. All that you owed, all that you deserved, he embraced so that you, friend, would be free and forgiven, free and forgiven, and then to know him as loving father so that you would live for him. And then, and in living in such a banquet of grace, where we know the love of God and the peace of God poured out into our hearts, how would we not be more and more inclined, right, to leave the presence of the king, so to speak, shouting with joy and singing his praises for who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ, and then wanting other people to know the exact same that we know for ourselves in him? How could we not, as Christians, in the face of Christ, live in the same compassion and then extend the same forgiveness we have been given in Jesus Christ? I pray you would never be, we would never be like this servant, right? Who seems to say, who seems to say, you know, sing that we just sung earlier, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. It's talking about how every need we have is fulfilled in Jesus. And then to turn around and say, shut up, give me my money. Punish other people, to exact other people for the forgiveness or for the death that they have to us. When we say, great is thy faithfulness in Jesus Christ. I pray that you, Christian, we Christians would never be like this servant who could, I think at the end of the day, say, I went before the king and I did, in fact, hear his pardon. But this guy, you know, the reality is he wasn't changed by grace. The evidence is clear. He doesn't know the king's forgiveness because he refuses to forgive. And there, right, he doesn't know the king's forgiveness. He's not permitted to receive the king's forgiveness. The shocking reality, as one has written, those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. I'll repeat that again. So good. Those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. Look at the third scene here of this parable. It's exactly what the third scene teaches us. Verse 32 to 35, look there. Then his master summoned him and said to him, 
you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Notice the servant here is called wicked. It's certainly strong language. Why is that? Look there, verse 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as, just as I had on you? Though he was shown mercy, he did not show mercy, even though compassion, he didn't show compassion. Thinking back now to when Peter asked the question to Jesus that kicked off this whole story. Thinking back to when Peter asked the question about how many times should I forgive my brother? In this whole story, Jesus basically reminds him that the infinite grace found in the gospel should drive infinite forgiveness of our brothers and sisters. Just as the gospel grants forgiveness, so the citizens of Christ's kingdom are to live in a way that depicts the love of God in Christ. If one does not, thinking back to what Calvin said, if one does not, then he shows himself incapable of receiving forgiveness. Look at the end of the parable there in verse 35. In, his ang in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That's shock language there. Now, you know, don't think again one-to-one -one and think, wow, does God actually have jailers? There's no evidence in the Bible that God has jailers. So that's not how we're supposed to read the parable here. This is shock language. Jesus is using shock language. He's shocking us that we might really pay attention. We understand our debt. We understand God's grace. We're going to go out and live in that grace. Jesus here, when he talks about delivering him over to jailers, he's not talking about some purgatory. You know, don't develop a doctrine of purgatory from this or anything else in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. The point is those who refuse the grace of God or spurn the grace of God will be judged by the law of retribution. They will be judged by the law of retribution where they must pay for their own debts without a guarantor, without a mediator. Look how Jesus concludes the parable there in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what happens to those who claim falsely, those who claim falsely to know Christ and his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy and who prove they don't know him because they give no grace. They prove they don't know him because they give no grace. To repeat this Calvin quote, right? No one is permitted to receive God's blessings unless he is consumed with the awareness of his poverty and to take it a step further to go and forgive other people. Some people think that this last scene teaches that God can revoke a pardon or something and, and it leads to the loss of salvation which is not found in the Bible. Others think this scene teaches that we stay in grace, right, by our works. And in this case, we stay in God's grace by forgiving. But that would be reading the parable too far here. Matthew Henry, an English Christian pastor and author, put it well when he wrote, this parable does not, this parable does not teach us that God reverses pardons, but that he denies them to those that are unqualified for them according to the gospel. Peter's question, how many times must I forgive my 
brother or sister who sins against me. Well, for those in the kingdom of God who know the grace of Christ and infinite forgiveness, Jesus requires us to love our brothers just as he has. And if we do not, we show ourselves unworthy to receive these blessings of forgiveness. This is part of the perseverance of God's people, right? How we persevere to the end? We persevere to the end. Actually, we show ourselves to be Christians, to know God's grace, to be counted worthy all by God's grace in Jesus Christ as we continue to follow in the steps of Christ all the way until the end. So as we conclude here, let me finish off on some application. How are you at forgiving from the heart? Genuinely forgiving. No Christian can say that we are perfect at this. Once again, we still sin. But to love more and more like Christ requires us to dwell more with Christ. Learning about his love, entering into his loves, the why and the how of the cross and resurrection and Christ himself. And even when we fail to love like he does, we have some encouragements here. I know some of you guys might be tempted towards an ungodly condemnation, right? You're tempted towards an ungodly condemnation, right? You beat yourself up in some sort of way, perhaps, to pay off your sin by making yourself feel bad. Well, here, I think we are encouraged to look to Jesus Christ and have great confidence while we walk and pray for faithfulness. Here's some encouragements. Number one, if you, if you uh, struggle to, to uh, forgive, first, confess your sins to Christ. Confess your sins to Christ, knowing his promise that according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? This is what what he calls us to do, confess our sins, because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what he desires. So Christian, do that. Fly to Christ. Second, Remember that Christ has cleared your debt of sin. He's already declared you not guilty. He's already declared you justified. We're not declared righteous by our works, not at all. Our works don't add to our righteousness. We are counted righteous through the work of Jesus Christ for Christians who turn from their sins and believe on him. So remember this, Christian. Christ has already cleared your debt of sin. Think about that on Easter Resurrection Sunday. Even the sin, right? Even the sin of struggling to forgive as we have been forgiven. Jason read earlier from Psalm 103, beautiful, marvelous passage. Talks about God, uh, you know, separating us from our sin and things like this. As far as the east is from the west, we know too that the Bible says, uh, you know, that God doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Now, when he says that, it doesn't mean that he forgets, right? It doesn't mean that he forgets um, as as somehow uh, they're lost from his memory, Uh, or even that he never recalls them again, or even that he never recalls them again. When when you hear this language about, you know, uh, he separates us as far from our, he separates us from our sin as far as the East is from the West in language like this, we are to remember that he no longer holds them against us. Certainly he remembers all of our sins, but he wants to remind us that every single one of them, every single one of them, has been covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. Imagine, right? Imagine if we are guilty, we know that we have sinned. God knows that we have sinned. But I imagine, I would hope that as we go to the gospel over and over and over again, we would be reminded that yes, he knows. 
And he too maybe brings up these things to our mind, right? Our guilt when we have sinned in the past, so that we would know that he holds us close to himself all the more. It's so that he might, we might know that he holds us close. And he, he might, you know, let's say some sin gets brought to your mind. Use that and think, and God has forgiven that one too. Can you imagine a, a good father? The perfect father, right? None of us are perfect fathers. But imagine the perfect father who draws near to his son or his daughter and says, remember that thing that you did? Remember that debt that you owed? Do you remember what covered it over for you? I know you're fearful. I know you're anxious. I know you feel like, like we aren't in a good relationship right now because you sinned. But do you remember when you did that thing, when you were debt, do you remember that I came to your rescue? Can he says, can you imagine him saying, Christian, know that again, that your debt has been covered over, your sins have been done away with, and Christ has said, it is finished. Remember that Christ has cleared your debt of sin, Christian, even the debt of struggling to forgive as we have been forgiven. Third thing, trust him and pray for help. Trust him and pray for help as you move towards forgiving. Trust him, pray for help as you move towards forgiving. Pray that you would love as he loves, that you would forgive as he forgives, loving like him and loving for him. All these things, really, as we look to confess our sins to Christ, which is the first thing, and then secondly, to remember that Christ has cleared our debt through his own blood. And then number three, trust Christ, pray to Christ. All these things here, we're just looking at Jesus, and we seek to have him change us as we seek to live for him. And these things, especially when we sin, Christians show themselves to truly understand grace and the forgiveness in Christ. And it's in walking in his footsteps trusting him for right standing, adoption into his family, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank God for the power of the gospel as Christ wins salvation for his people and the good work that he has started in his people's hearts, he promises and he will by his own promise to bring it to completion. Not because we are strong in ourselves, but because he is strong. He is our hope in life and death because he has lived and died and lived again for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a compassionate God. Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you are a compassionate Savior and Lord and King who looks upon sinners and has mercy upon them. We know, Lord, that even on the cross, you prayed. You prayed, you interceded for those who went on to murder you. You prayed for all of us, your people. You prayed for us that we would be forgiven as you bore our sins on the cross. Lord, how can we deny you are a compassionate, merciful, and gracious God? We thank you that you see our plight because of who we are and what we have done, and you intervene. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your righteous life, that you are, in fact, the perfect sacrifice who died on the cross, who bore the sin and the wrath that we ourselves deserve as your people, sinners. 
and you took it all. You absorbed our debt. Free for us was salvation and pardon. But we know, Lord, it cost you so greatly. We thank you for your resurrection, the power of the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, as your Bible says, your word says, now dwells within us, and we will know resurrection at the very end, as we already know resurrection life now. Help us as Christians forgive as we have been forgiven, especially as we all sit here today on this Easter Sunday, thinking about the cross and the resurrection and the forgiveness we have. Make us more like you, we pray. In your name we ask, amen.